Hi, Foxies. The episode you're trying to listen to is right around the corner, but first, we need your help. You may have noticed that there are no ads during the Fox and the Foxhound. We prefer this, being ad haters ourselves, but we need your help to keep it that way. If you love this show, please consider signing up as a patron at patreon.com slash the Fox and the Foxhound. We have Patreon tiers starting at just $1 a month. And not only will you get fun extra content and an unedited cut of every episode two days early, you'll be directly responsible for keeping the show going in all of its ad-free glory. Thanks to all of our existing patrons, past patrons, and hopefully future patrons. Enjoy the episode. Hello, friends. Before we jump into this week's episode, two quick reminders. Number one, The Fox and the Foxhound contains adult language and content, and if that's not your thing, this may not be a good fit for you. Two, The Fox and the Foxhound contains mild spoilers. Although my esteemed co-host and soon-to-be husband is reading the series for the first time, he has undoubtedly absorbed some plot points from pop culture and from sharing a home with yours truly for the past several years. So if you're completely new to the Harry Potter world, keep this in mind. We'll do our best to give a quick warning if we're about to say something spoilery. And now, The Fox and the Foxhound. Get some! Welcome back! We're back. Episode 2. You came back, which means maybe you like us. Just a little bit. I have finally stopped playing Wizards Unite long enough to record an episode. Which I affectionately refer to as Pokemon Go. Yeah, he just keeps calling it Pokemon I Go. keep telling Amanda, catch them all. Just gotta catch, catch them all. Catch all the wizards. Lock them back up in Azkaban. Just, it's, it's, that's not what it is. So, you know, but good on you for knowing Azkaban and knowing that Azkaban is a prison and that that's where you would, in fact, lock up wizards if you were catching wizards which are not in to catch a wizard to catch (laughs) i made some sweet tea (laughs) i'm doing some laundry just put your wand on the table i'll be right in hi i'm chris hansen do you know why you're here holy shit i better apparate quick (laughs) nice Nice use of apparition (laughs) all right and we're rolling yay i'm so proud so today we are covering chapters four five and six of sorcerer's stone so where we left off was uh, Harry was counting down the seconds to his birthday. They're in the little hut out to sea where the Dursleys are hiding from the mafia. <laughs> and there's a knock on the door. So just like we did last week, I am going to start off by giving you the first couple of sentences of this particular chunk, chapters four through six of Sorcerer's slash Philosopher's Stone. And Kevin's going to give you the last little chunk. So we begin with Boom. They knocked again. Dudley jerked awake. Where's the cannon? He said stupidly. (laughs) It's just a great line. Hagrid raised a gigantic fist and knocked three times on the castle door. So weird little um, full circle with these three chapters that I'm just noticing now that we're reading these two sections back to back. Ooh, that's, ooh, it just gave me chills. Lots to cover. We got to start with Hagrid because the Keeper of the Keys, of course, that entire chapter, chapter four, Keeper of the Keys refers to Hagrid. Rubius Hagrid, Keeper of Keys and Grounds at Hogwarts. He's the groundskeeper. 
Which means a lot of things because Hogwarts has a lot of grounds. We we don't quite get there in this chunk, but, you know, a groundskeeper for Hogwarts is a pretty big job. So there's a pretty big dude to go along with it. And we've got this really great chapter of establishing Hagrid's sort of approach to everything, which like he keeps forgetting that Harry doesn't know any of this. And I mean, I love him, don't get me wrong, but he can be a little frustrating in this chapter. And uh, we have the Dursley's reaction to Hagrid. So I have a couple of impressions about the Dursley's reaction to Hagrid. This is something I've always explored in my own mind with the Dursleys. If they are so awful to Harry, why were they so committed to stamping this nonsense out of him? I mean, that almost implies a really deranged kind of misguided version of caring about him. We want him to be normal. We we don't want him mixed up in this. It To me, it kind of read as parents who would send their gay son to a conversion therapy Ooh. type of camp. Yeah. It's like, yeah, we want you to live here. We're not disowning you. We love you. And we think what's best for you is to get this evil thing out of you. Oh, that's a really good metaphor. So is it caring about him? Or is it if you're going to be associated with us, you need to have a certain look and a certain appeal? Right. Are you afraid of your kid being gay? Are you afraid of your neighbors knowing you have a gay kid? And now that makes sense. It's not even necessarily about doing, you know, what's best for Harry in their minds. It's about, like it always is with the Dursleys, about appearances, about normalcy. But normalcy as it reflects on them, not as it affects Harry. That makes sense. I like it. I also think that their fear of the wizarding world and how powerful it is also drives them to have a little bravado. Even when Hagrid busts through the door five separate times, Vernon bucks up and is like, look here, pal. That's quite enough. Even though he's terrified, but he knows how powerful they are. And that also explains the almost seemingly irrational behavior of like, okay, these letters are coming in for Harry, right? The letters are shooting in through the fireplace. That's kind of freaky. (laughs) But that's, there's a cat reading a map. Like, nothing that, there's no horse's head in the bed or anything. Oh my. But he's like, let's move to an island. Like, we gotta get the hell out of here. Like, we have to hide from these people. Now it makes more sense. He knew how powerful they are. And knowing that he knew, and Petunia knew, I mean, obviously she knew because it was her sister, what happened to Harry's parents? I mean, their fear is not completely unfounded, right? I mean, that sounds terrifying. Yeah, and from Petunia's perspective, it's like, listen, you got mixed up with these, you know, let's say drug dealers or whatever. You got mixed up with this bad crowd, and my sister ended up dead because of it. I think it can be really easy to forget that Petunia was Lily's sister and that there's a loss there as well. Because like I was saying last week, I think it's really especially easy to sort of just assume that the Dursleys are set pieces to assume that they're just these sort of like figures that, oh, thank God, Harry gets away from them. I mean, in the the larger sense of that, you know, they're not two dimensional, not really. They're pretty three dimensional characters, which for JK Rowling to write these, you know, background characters is so three dimensional is just, she's just pretty brilliant. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. How tall do you think Hagrid 
is? I mean, I kind of imagine him being about like close to eight feet tall. I think that's a reasonable assumption that he's about that. If he's stooping to avoid his head hitting the ceiling, it would be unusual for the ceiling to be lower than eight feet tall. So he's huge. We got to we got to talk about Hagrid's pockets. So I I could not possibly tell you everything he has in his pockets because this goes on for a couple of chapters. But I mean, he's got an entire tea set. He's got a kettle. He's got does he have an owl in there at some point? Yeah, he has sausages, fat, juicy, slightly burnt sausages, which I don't eat meat. But I don't that, either. And that sounds so doesn't good. Doesn't that sound so yeah. good? Later on at Gringotts, when he's trying to fish out Harry's key. There's a bunch of like dog biscuits <laughs> in his pot. So many that it says he stuffed some back in. I know. Yes. So, and when Harry's trying to pay the owl for the daily profit, he he said that the coat seemed to be made of nothing but pockets, which I think is just kind of perfect. Some of the things that I'm starting to notice about her writing, because I've never read any of her writing before, is she writes for her audience so well. Because when I read children's literature or young adult literature, I try to imagine the opportunities that I've had when I've read to my nieces and nephews, read to your nieces and nephews over the years. And when you're a kid and an adult's telling you a story and they're like this giant man, and then he pulled this out of his pocket and this out of his pocket and this out of his pocket. Kids typically aren't like, how can you fit so many things in your pocket? In their mind, they're like, this guy's amazing. He's so big, he has a million pockets. The suspension of disbelief, she doesn't oversell, she doesn't wink nudge at the audience. She just tells the story. She's like, here's this dude, had a million things in his pockets. She doesn't say, a giant with a magical coat full of a million magical pockets. I don't feel like I'm being placated. It's like, you can handle this. You have an imagination. Here you go. Here's the story. That's just a little aside. You're not being spoon fed. Right. It's confidence in the mythology. It's confidence in her writing. Absolutely. He also has mice in there, huh? (laughs) This also reminds me of a moment when he, because I am remembering that he did pull an owl out and like sent the message to Dumbledore. And then it says that he like threw the owl out into Into the the storm and just shuts the door. Do you know what I was reminded of? Like, I realize that anyone listening, maybe a few people who are listening know your dad, but it reminds me so much of the stories you tell about your dad grocery shopping and how like, he's just so, he just knows what he wants. And so he goes to the shelf and he just takes three of them and just throws them. He doesn't look really at the package. He just sort of out of the corner of his eyes, like, oh, sugar cookies and just grabs like two packs with one hand or whatever it is. It could be like cabbage, like, oh. Cabbage. Throw a few of these, just toss them into the cart. (laughs) Yeah, it's just uh, everything is just done with this like casualness. Like you don't realize how big you are. This slightly violent efficiency, you know, that I think Hagrid and your dad both have, which it's just kind of great. So, you know, when the owl brings the newspaper in, the Daily Prophet, yes. Right. And the owl, after he brings the newspaper, he goes to the coat and he starts attacking Hagrid's coat. Yes. I instantly thought, well, he's looking for the mice. (laughs) which is logical there's mice in there moving because he tells harry hey put this coat on don't mind if it moves there's some uh door mice in there and i'm like oh the owl's looking for the mice and then he's like oh you gotta pay the dude he works for the newspaper (laughs) which i mean like i'm sure he also like 
a, a dormouse wouldn't go remiss with this owl also. I mean, like, I feel like if Harry knew a little bit more about the wizarding world and wasn't so just taken aback by this new currency and everything, he might have given him the five canuts and then also, you know, also thrown him a, a dormouse. I mean, come on. Like, or why is Hagrid keeping mice in his coat? I don't know. Hagrid is a lovable, lovable mystery to me. Hagrid also delivers arguably the most important sentence of the series where he says, Harry, you're a wizard. How does Harry react to this? He's kind of like, I've let these punks bully me around this whole time, and I was a wizard? (laughs) And Hagrid's like, come on, bro. Don't tell me you haven't done some weird shit. And then he thinks, oh, yeah, when I was getting bullied, I ended up on the roof. Maybe that's the whole snake thing in the zoo. Whoops. Right. Right. Well, and he also kind of has this moment of being like, this just makes me so sad when he's like, oh, no, I think you've made some kind of mistake. I've been told I'm worthless my whole life. Don't tell me I'm exceptional because I'm not going to believe it. And then when he looks back on his life and says, man, you mean I was exceptional this entire time? I think that's really beautiful. The very next chapter, he wakes up assuming it was all a dream. You know, he's just waiting for the other shoe to drop, this poor kid. Because that's how every hero is presented in most stories at the beginning. Right. I'm not great. Yeah. I'm not anything. I'm a normal person. And he goes on to have, even within these three chapters, he goes on to have a lot of insecurities about like, okay, what happens when I get there, though? You know, what happens when I get there? I'm pretty sure that I'm going to be the worst in the class. He says that to Ron later. Which is probably why this story is so classic and pulls so many people in, because it's you want your audience to instantly identify with the hero, with the protagonist. That's why you always have the classic story of the unsung hero. Yeah. The hero that doesn't know he's great. The reluctant Because hero. that's the fun of stories, is that as humans, we walk around feeling like, I'm not that great. I'm not powerful. I'm not exceptional. Yeah. And it's fun to read stories and say, you are, you can be exceptional. You can be powerful. Yeah, and it's, I feel like if he had reacted with aggression towards the Dursleys, I mean, he's definitely angry, but I think he's sort of, honestly, I think he kind of holds it in check. I think Hagrid's more angry with the Dursleys than Harry is in in this chapter. I feel like she, J.K. Rowling would have lost the audience rooting for Harry in that moment if he had taken what I think would be a very understandable reaction and very understandable stance towards them, like, oh, my parents died in a car crash? You motherfuckers. You know, like, he doesn't really, he doesn't really freak out on them. Well, it's also, that's his family. That's who raised him. Like we talked about in the last episode, we don't get those 10 years of Harry growing up. That makes me want to cry. the, The abused child loves their parents. You know, the kid that gets smacked around loves the dad that smacks him around. That's part of being raised. That's part of being a child of someone's offspring. And so it's not fair for us to jump in and forget those 10 years and think, oh, here's Harry raised by these stupid people. No, they literally had 10 years. They raised this kid. They changed his diapers. They fed him. Like, he's not dead. He's alive. They do send him to school. He's not locked in a basement. Like, I'm not excusing the Dursleys for their awful behavior. But they're the only family that he's ever known, which when the time passes before he actually goes to Hogwarts and they've just stopped talking to him altogether and they look at him as if it was an empty chair, 
he feels lonely. Oh my God. It's kind of nice for him, but it kind of feels lonely because that's his family. This is seriously shattering my little heart into a million pieces because I think what you're saying is absolutely true. And it makes me really, really sad. There's also some good sassy Harry in these chapters. (laughs) You know, I love sassy Harry. (laughs) Harry says, do you mean to tell me, he growled at the Dursleys, that this boy, this boy knows nothing about, about anything. (laughs) Harry thought this was going a bit far. He had been to school after all, and his marks weren't bad. (laughs) And he's like, I know math. He's like, my bad. Like, I know math and stuff. Is that cool? It's just like little Harry in his head is like, knows nothing. Hey, man. I know stuff. I know a few things. Yeah. God, he's precious. I just love him so much. We move into the magical world in this section of chapters as well. And one thing that I found really interesting I hadn't noticed before is when Harry starts meeting a lot of these other magical beings, you know, of course, we have the funny stuff with like Hagrid being like, oh, the muggles, look at them with their parking meters, you know, whatever. But as we actually get into Diagon Alley and we start meeting other magical people, there's this moment where Tom the barman at the Leaky Cauldron He's like, oh, my God, it's Harry Potter. And he shakes his hand and he's holding back tears, which I think is interesting. It's not just that Harry's famous. He's also representing something. He's revered. He's revered. And I think he's a symbol of, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of talk about Hagrid kind of says, like, you know who is gone, but maybe he's not gone. And, you know, all this Some stuff. Some people say he's just kind of chilling out, waiting. Right. Well, people also know this whole time. Harry's in books. He's Everyone knows who Harry Potter is because he is the one who sent Voldemort away. Like, he's... And I almost think there's a sense of, is this guy going to come back? And we're already getting set up for the symbol that is Harry of being the savior. He's the boy who lived. He's the one that's going to save us all. Because, I mean, I'm sure, like, Harry's story is sad. I just find it hard to believe that he's going to be running into all of these people who are going to be so moved by his presence just because something really sad happened to him 11 years ago. There's a lot of emotion behind it. And it feels maybe a little fear-based. It feels like, oh, thank God, Harry Potter has become 11 and is now in the wizarding world and he's going to save us all. It's respect. It's not like, hey, you're the kid who like the famous person whacked your parents and you survived. Like, sorry about your parents. There must be something cool about you. Everyone knows in such and such year, you know, Harry Potter is like eight years old now. Oh, really? Yeah, that means like in a few years, he'll actually be attending Hogwarts. What year is he actually attending Hogwarts? Oh, really? Crazy. People would be looking at the newspaper to see like, is Harry at Hogwarts? Like, dude, I hope I see him. Wouldn't it be crazy to actually see like the royal baby or whatever, this kid grown up and then he experiences it. And Hagrid's telling him like, you're famous, dude. You're famous. Yeah. You're a big deal. You're going to see this happen more and more that people look at you and are like, you're a big deal. Yeah. And someone even shakes his hand in the Leaky Cauldron and says, so proud, Mr. Potter. I'm just so proud. 
Like, we don't know who says that. It's just kind of this one line of dialogue in a, in a big chunk of dialogue. And what it makes me wonder is, what was Voldemort's effect? Because it's not told to you, Voldemort brought a dark reign of ruin, like Scar and Lion King. Like, all the vegetables died and there was no food and water. Like, none of that is said. They're just like, this was this dude. He was a wizard. He kind of turned and did some bad stuff. He tried to kill this kid's parents, and now he's gone. We also meet Professor Quirrell. Hagrid says, like, yeah, he's nervous to meet you, but he's always, he's also always kind of nervous. Right, right. Poor Professor Quirrell. He just seems like, bless his heart. You know, he's really... You feel bless his heart about every character. I really, you know, I wouldn't say every character. There are many characters I don't feel bless his heart about, but I kind of do about Quirrell, at least in this moment. I do, because he's just like, I don't know, he's stuttering, and he's, oh, God, I don't know. We go to Gringotts. You know, we've got the shopping list. We've got the school shopping list. Always an exciting time to be shopping for school supplies. Now, I have one quick question before we talk about the goblins. Having been on the Gringotts ride at Universal, how do you feel like it's stacked up to the description of Gringotts? Oh, that instantly, that's all I could think about was the Gringotts coaster. It's so Everything's good. Everything's coming back to theme parks and roller coasters for me. It's so good. If you haven't been on it, you really, you got to try and get there. I also, the dragon makes sense to me now. I'm like, why is there this dragon at this top of the building? Oh, he's hiding the really high security vaults. Yeah. Yeah, the dragon. And like at, at one point, Harry thinks he sees a flash of fire out of the corner of his eye and he turns and it probably was the dragon. That's that's one thing I hadn't really noticed. Before. Yeah, he looks down a little pathway and see, thinks he sees fire and he's like, holy crap. Yeah, this this is legit. This is for real. But the fact that the goblins are like, hear ye, hear ye. <laughs> if you try to rob us, you're going to be sorry, punk, because you're going to find a little bit more than treasure. Probably the most gangster thing that we've read so far is... Thief, you have been warned, beware of finding more than treasure there. You're going to get a little more than you bargain for. You try to rob our bank. Yes. Sucker. Well, and here's here's something I want to ask you. Do you feel like this is one of those, you know, you see signs in places and you're like, okay, who was the motherfucker that made that policy go into place? Do you feel like the goblins have become this way because of failed attempts in the past to rob Gringotts? I mean, like. Where does this come from? She's setting up the eventual robbery of Gringotts. She sets it up so carefully because Hagrid says, yeah, you'd be a fool to try to rob it. I tell you that. Just kind of exposition thrown in there. I tell you what, if you tried to rob this place, you'd be a total moron. And Harry's like, why why did you say that again? That you're trying... They have spells and enchantments. They have dragons. They have all types of stuff. I'm just... Just trust me, bro. But yeah, like you're saying, they wouldn't put this sign unless they were like, listen, there's some serious stuff. Have you ever been to a gas station and there's a sign at the front? Actually, the one down the street from <laughs> us, there's a sign that says, please leave your backpacks at the front counter. So if you walk in and you have a backpack on, your etiquette is to take it off, leave it at the front counter, go to get your items, come back, purchase your items. If no one had ever stuffed snacks in a book bag and tried to shoplift, they wouldn't have that sign. Right. And the goblins wouldn't have this sign unless someone had tried to rob them before. True. Now, later on, when the newspaper says somebody broke into Gringotts and tried to rob something, you're like, oh. Ooh, interesting. And then they say, some people think it has something to do with Voldemort. Are people nervous about Harry coming back? 
Are people oh. nervous? Voldemort tries to kill Harry. It doesn't work. Voldemort disappears. Everyone knows Harry's coming back. It's like, oh, is this going to bring Voldemort back out because he knows Harry's here? And if that's the case, are we all doomed? Like, are big things about to go down? Harry as a bad omen. That's that's pretty interesting. I, I think that's logical. I think there are probably some people who are thinking that way. It almost feels to me the way that we consume the news, the way we consume international affairs. Um, at the time of this recording, recently there were tankers that were bombed, maybe by Iran, Japanese tankers. And the feeling that you get when you read the news and you see that tensions have escalated or that something that has happened that could feasibly escalate tensions between our country and another country. Right. It gives you sort of a chill down your spine. It gives you this feeling of like, oh, God, what is this going to be? What is this going to lead to? Well, and we also get allusions to, you know, Hagrid mentions the Ministry of Magic. He mentions Cornelius Fudge and what a dipshit he is and how he's always writing to Dumbledore for advice. So there's already this illusion that like, yes, there's a wizard government and also it's incompetent. Like we're getting that in literally like chapter four and five. Just sprinkled in. Just sprinkled in, really cash. And the way that a 10-year-old child could read it and understand pretty much like the right. gist of what's going on. It's it's pretty great. So we've got like, Harry's got a ton of stuff to buy in, in Diagon Alley. Of course, uh, you know, we got to talk about Ollivander and the wand lore that we see in a second. But, you know, we also meet uh, a pretty important little little blonde, pointy-faced asshole. Draco. Draco. And it's in the robe shop. Yes, Madame And he's Hawkins. being sized up for his robe. And he kind of looks over at Harry and is like, hey, what's up, man? Going to Hogwarts? Yeah, yeah. No doubt. <laughs> this is where we first learned that there are houses in Hogwarts, of course. And as a Hufflepuff, I would really like to just express Trigger my, warning. Just, you know, my absolute, I mean, I wouldn't say disappointment. I would say outrage at the uh, couple of very derisive Hufflepuff comments that are made. I mean, like Draco Malfoy, I would expect no less. Uh, but even even Hagrid has a little shade at the, the Hufflepuffs. Draco says, can you imagine getting sorted into Hufflepuff? I just go home. <laughs> it just, Dag. I just, like, hey, hey, hey. That's like, if I got accepted into so-and-so college, I just wouldn't go to college. It's like, also, like, first of all, fuck this guy. Because Hufflepuffs are amazing. And... We're kind and loyal and patient and all of. Oh, I just. I'm, I don't know that yet, though. So I'm you're, sorry. you're getting know, ahead of me. I know. The I know you don't know this me. yet, but you know me, and you know that I'm a Hufflepuff, and you know how offended I am by this. And even even Hagrid is like, everyone says Hufflepuff are a lot of duffers, but and then Harry says, I bet I'm in Hufflepuff. And it says he said gloomily. You know what? Fuck all of you. Hufflepuff <laughs> is great. Well, more importantly, what she's doing is just setting up, hey, there are divisions. There are divisions of poor and rich. Even here, there are divisions, which hearken to, there's the jocks, there's the nerds, there's the cool kids, there's the freaks, there's the weirdos, there's the poor kids, there's the rich kids, there's race, there's sexuality. All the things that come into play at school, mm -hmm. she's setting it up. Hey, you're going into the wizard world, and she's telling... The characters are telling Harry, but the author is telling the audience, yeah. this world is not so different from your world. The school is very much like 
your school. This kid is very much like you. It's very important to not forget the audience that this is written for. Absolutely. I mean, very, very shortly after interacting with Draco for the first time, Harry is very, very clearly reminded of Dudley. So right there, you know, there's your, yes, this world has magic and they sell all sorts of different things at the market, but there's still the woman muttering about the price of, you know, newt eyes at the market, the way that the woman at, you know, Food Lion is is muttering about the increased price of corn. Like there are so many things that are intended to show you this world still has a ton of problems. And now in this world, not only do we have all of those issues you just mentioned, but now we have, you know, old wizard families and wizards that come from muggles. We're starting to get a little bit of illusion there, which I kind of forgot how early in the books we start getting that. And that's a really big series long concept. So it's just, I don't know. It's kind of great to revisit. You know, to me, walking into Diagon Alley in the book felt so much to me. And I've been to Universal Studios, but I didn't know the mythology. I hadn't read the books. So to me, walking into Diagon Alley in the book was even more amazing than walking into it at the park. It felt to me so much like Back to the Future when Marty finally lands in the 50s. Mr. Sandman, bring me a dream. (laughs) And you look around and it's like, life is normal. There's cars, there's the gas station, there's the clock tower, there's the diner, there's all the things that you know exist already, but they're different. Yeah. They're different. And so he goes to the diner and yeah, there's, he asks for a Pepsi free. You want a Pepsi, you got to pay for it, pal. And shout out to Jeff Tucker from 91 Reasons, the biggest Back to the Future fan ever. (laughs) But it gave me that feeling of, oh, cool. Cool, I'm getting a layover. I'm getting a version of my world but with attributes of another magical world i almost don't like fantasy that's so heavily detached from our world that i feel like i need to stop every two pages and jot down notes about what is what yes if it's a different universe this kind of like universe building thing i don't I don't feel like I have the brain capacity for it. It Like, I don't know what that says about me. I don't really care what it says about me. It's just not my thing. So I think this is one of the reasons why I love this series is that it's it's within our world, but it's hidden and secret. But all of the people still have the same shitty problems. They just also can do magic. Yeah, there's still newspapers. There's still jerks. There's still crime. Yeah, there's there's banks. There's shops. There's commerce. There's an economy. There's a currency. Okay, I can handle this. Cool. Like, this is like my world. I'm ready to to see what's going on. Yeah, there's still invasive old men who touch your forehead and, and try to sell you a wand. Without consent. Without consent. Like, Ollivander's a little, um, little intense. It even says he was standing so close to Harry that their noses were almost touching. He's a close talker. He's a close talker. Oh, God. I can't stand the close talker. Was there anything that you were particularly struck by within Ollivander's about, I mean, like every character in this series has a wand and they're all different and they're all unique. But did you feel like you learned anything new from like, you know, having seen the movie, having like literally seen, I mean, like I have a couple of wands from Universal. What was new to you about the wands? 
Well, one thing that uh, Ollivander remembers every wand that he's ever sold. And him going through the wands, he says, the wand chooses the wizard. This one might be good for you. This is like a unicorn hair, <laughs> red oak, pine, circa 1987. This what is a pretty did, decent one. Try this one out. sound like a dude selling you a truck in your head <laughs> listen man listen now i don't have the running boards of a 67 chevelle but it might as well let me tell you something i don't even know what a running board is but <laughs> that was that was beautifully done and he even comments on Hagrid's wand which mm. shows you how long ollivander's been in business it does i also really don't like this moment either it makes me so uncomfortable like you know how i am about I can't pull pranks on people. I hate seeing other people embarrassed. And this is a moment that like every time I get to this in the books, I just like want to skip forward because it makes me so uncomfortable. For it Hagrid. made me laugh. And I don't know. Sometimes I don't know if you hotless bastard, if JK Rowling is this funny or if it's just my sense of humor when I'm reading this. She's pretty funny. But uh, when Ollivander brings up, oh, yeah, Haggard, like I. I know your wand, too. And he says, really bendy? He describes his wand as being bendy, having known that like his wand was broken in half. It's like, was it bendy, or was he kind of giving him, like, a, throwing him a Sorry, little shade? This is not a funny moment. I don't appreciate you finding humor in Hagrid's pain. <laughs> this is, you know, I hate this moment. Hagrid's so embarrassed, he clutches his little pink umbrella because... You know? Well, he clutches the pink umbrella because we're like, oh, that's what happened to his broken wand. Yeah, because he's been using, you know, he made the fire and the, the hut on the rock. And we and learned that wands it. actually have stuff inside of them, which makes them magical. One of the things yeah. is unicorn hair. Yes. And that's our first mention of, wait, unicorns exist in this world? Holy shit. That's very... Like, used in a lot of different mythology. I love that she's not afraid to incorporate mythologies that we already know. So Which is going to bring... There's a real big one that we need to bring up that she capitalizes. What is it? The Dark Side. The Dark Side. With a capital D and a capital S. Oh, my God. And the first time I read the phrase, the Dark Side with a capital D and a capital S, and was like... She just did it. She just straight she just up went did it. Full on Star Wars and was just like the dark side. So if I'm not mistaken, this is when someone's mentioning the the Malfoys and specifically Draco Malfoy's father, who we don't know by name yet, that he was one of those who came back from the dark side after the first war and said he had been bewitched. I think it is Hagrid who's saying it. And he's like, Hagrid's basically going, yeah, okay, pal. You were bewitched. All right, sure. Like, didn't really need much of a reason to go to the dark side. Yeah. Now, the dark side, as George Lucas created it, was not foreign to us. It has to do with the duality of man, the dark side of the moon, the light and the dark, the good and the evil, the yin and the yang. Like, it's not a new concept. But George Lucas used the term the dark side as a proper... Yeah terminology almost and we've incorporated it into our speech and our culture when we talk like yeah i used to have this teacher she was really cool her name was miss jefferson and like ninth and tenth grade she was awesome she kind of turned to the dark side (laughs) she was sort of a bitch in 11th grade yeah like we use dark side as just this throw around thing and the fact that she used it and capitalized it it's the capitalization of the d and the s that's like 
this is a thing. This is a place that's so Star Wars. I didn't think she robbed that from Star Wars. I thought, oh, this story has to do with the duality of man. This has to do with choices and your own inner moral compass. I'm so glad. There's a lot that really ropes you in in these three chapters. Well, she keeps she gives you just enough to go. Hmm. There are like here's your villain. She even names your villain right off the bat. It's Voldemort. It's you know who. But she she keeps that carrot dangling just out of your reach, or the dollar bill, like the commercial. Where it's like, oh, you could have had it. Got to be quicker than that. <laughs> you almost had. It. <laughs> So, you know, poor little Harry, he's got to get to Hogwarts, right? So we got to get on the train. Hagrid's incredibly unhelpful directions, by the way. Here's your ticket. Be there on September 1st, platform nine and three quarters. Harry's like, okay, sure. And then sheepishly goes to his uncle and is like, hey, I know that you guys haven't talked to me for two months and you kind of hate me, but uh, that Hogwarts thing's going down. And could I like, I don't know. Catch a ride to the station. Poor Harry. And I think that they're like, okay, like we can't not take him right. because we're afraid of the mafia is going to come get us. Our son has a pig's tail right now. Right. Yeah. Well, that's. What was that doctor's visit like, by the way? Oh, we have to go to L- London anyway to get his pigtail removed? What did they tell the doctor in that moment? He tried to turn him into a pig, but he was already close enough. <laughs> And Vernon even looks at the thing and says, nine and three quarters, there's no such thing. Okay. Yeah, dumbass. Yeah, okay, good luck. Nine and three quarters. There you go. Yeah, I'll drop you off. Good luck. Harry does make it onto platform nine and three quarters, thanks to the very helpful assistance of a certain redheaded family who are going to be real important. Molly, just an epic, epic character. What are your thoughts about this little microcosm of the Hogwarts Express? We're already getting some really interesting setups here. You got some snacks. You got some candy. He meets Ron. Oh, these are my brothers. Sort of sets that up, sets this up. You meet Hermione. Draco comes back. All this stuff's going on. I'm glad that it wasn't. And the next day, Harry showed up at Hogwarts. Like, I'm glad it wasn't this. He walked through a magical portal And before him stood this grand castle. He literally has to take a train. And it leaves London. And it leaves London. And even Vernon is like, oh, you have to take a train to go to your magic school? What? All of the flying carpets had holes in them, did they? Yeah, that's what he does make that remark. Fucking Vernon. I mean, he's got a point. Which just shows how Harry embraces whatever's going on. He's like, cool, that's fine. I got to walk through a wall, walk through a wall, magical train, fine. He's so accepting. Whatever you got. He's so accepting of all of it. Like anything is better than the hell I've lived in. Absolutely. Sure. Broomsticks, goblins, whatever. Running at a brick wall with my trolley and my brand new owl. Yeah, absolutely. I'll do it. Fine. Whatever. I'm not going And Harry meets quite possibly outside of Miss Fig, maybe-ish. His first friend, or his first potential friend. Oh my God, Mrs. Fig is Harry's first friend. Which is wrong. (gasps) Oh my God, I'm sorry. I just need like a moment with that. Mrs. Fig is Harry's first, okay. Ron, why do you think Harry and Ron bond with each other? Well, they show that Ron has these two older brothers who have already graduated. 
Yeah. Two older brothers who go there, but are bad kids, but they make good grades, but yeah. they're kind of funny and they're mischievous. And then this little sister who's not even old enough to go to school yet. Oh my God, Kev, you forgot Percy. How could you forget Percy? The I thought prefect. Percy was like the little girl. Oh, that's right. God, <laughs> how many kids do they have? They have seven. Oh, there's seven. Bill, Charlie, Percy, Fred, George, Ron, Ginny. I can't believe you forgot Percy. Oh, my. Prefect. The prefect. Oh, I'm sorry, Percy. Were you a prefect? I didn't hear you mention it. I love the twins, by the way. You know, Ron mentioned something about, like, I think this is so sad every time I reread it, when he says, like, my brothers have all done all this stuff. Like, Fred and George make a lot of trouble, but they still make pretty good grades. Bill and Charlie are both really successful. Percy's a prefect. Basically, like, if I screw up, then I'm the first one to screw up. And if I don't screw up, then it's not a big deal because all of them have done it before me. It's so sad. Poor Ron. And Harry asks, well, what happens after Hogwarts? What do you do? When you go to, like, wizard college, like, what do you do when you get out? And he's like, oh, well, my one brother raises dragons, and my other brother's in Africa doing something for the ministry. Doesn't for he say Gringotts. something? Oh, for Gringotts. Mm-hmm. He's like doing something in Africa for Gringotts. Bill. Which your mind is like, what the hell is he doing right. for Gringotts in Africa? Well, and also, I think that's kind of, that's an interesting moment, too, because you're like, oh, Gringotts isn't just this place in Diagon Alley. Like, Hagrid did mention that Gring- Gringotts is like the only wizard bank, but Gringotts is like Bank of America. Like they've got shit going on. They're too big to fail. They're too big to fail, as are the goblins. Yes, so true. So Ron is a bit of a divisive character kind of among the fandom. And, and I'd like to get your initial thoughts of Ron. There's an interesting moment here. Now, just so we know, I'm a big fan of Ron. I really like Ron. I think he's great. But there is an accusation that Ron can be a bit selfish. And there's a little moment of this. So, you know, Ron's kind of alluding to the fact that his family doesn't have a lot of money and that they couldn't afford. I mean, I got scabbers instead, you know, that moment. And Harry is being really empathic towards him and is like, oh, well, I know what it's like to not have any money. And so he starts telling Ron about how he had to wear Dudley's clothes and all this stuff. This seemed to cheer Ron up. Some may say that a true empath, a true quote unquote, capital G, capital P, good person would be like, oh, that's so sad for you. But Ron's like, sweet, you were poor too? Awesome. Well, once again, we're looking at it as adults. And we're not looking at it as the audience that it was intended for. It's true. What she's trying to do is make things relatable. And what makes things relatable is when you go into gym class and everyone there has muscles and is athletic and you don't have muscles and you're not athletic and you see the other wimpy kid sitting on the bleachers, that's the kid you go sit beside. And when they say, yeah, I don't know how to shoot a basketball too, it does make you happy. It's not because you're selfish. To me, that's... Adult Potter fans dicing the story apart, which they have every right to do, and you guys have a blast doing it. My journey as a new reader, knowing that this was written for children, I love that. My heart swelled. Like, it made me feel better when she said Ron felt better, because I instantly thought, here's a potential friendship. This is what makes friendships. Yeah. When you're like, when you're talking to somebody casually, you ever had that moment 
We've all had that moment where you're at a party, you're at a bar, maybe you're have gone out with another couple to eat or something, and you don't know these people. Maybe you'll hit it off. Maybe you won't. Of course, you're going to have a friendly time. But you click on something, and you think, what I always call it, instant best friends just add water. Dude. You're like, oh, my God. You also love Beauty and the Beast? Dude, I also had a mil- grew up in a military family. Oh, my God, you grew up in Montana? I grew up in Montana. It's one of those things of, like, that's how we connect with people socially as a human. And as kids, Ron felt better because he's like, here's somebody else that kind of has it like me. I, th- I don't think it's, oh, well, now I feel better because someone had it worse than me. I think it's, here's a friend. Here's a potential friend. I really like that. And I feel like all the Ron haters need to listen to that. All the Ron haters out there, are you thinking about this with your adult brain? Or are you thinking about this with your 11-year-old brain? And are you thinking about the characters who are children? They are children. This will so come up many, many more times. I'm really excited about those conversations. As you mentioned, there's a lot of, you know, kind of new characters we meet. We meet Hermione. We meet Neville. I mean, Hermione's kind of this mile a minute. She's sort of bossy. Ron seems to instantly not like her. We don't really know how Harry feels about Hermione. You know from watching at least the first movie that Hermione, of course, becomes a staple of the series. You know, it's an interesting jump. When you revisit this chapter and you see kind of like how... I don't find her unlikable, but how unlikable I think Ron and maybe even Harry find her. If I was 11 years old and this little girl walked in and was like, I would think, God, would she just get the hell out of here? Like we were eating candy and talking about boy stuff. And now this stupid little girl walks in, running her mouth with her giant teeth. What what I'm hearing is that you kind of feel like maybe 11-year-old Kev was Ron Weasley. I think 11-year-old boys are like, gross, get out of here, stupid girl. <laughs> With their what are you talking hair? about? I don't care what you're talking about. It's like, oh, you're doing magic? Because you're a girl. We're Let's trying to talk it. about G.I. Joe, and you're talking about whatever stupid things that girls talk about. <laughs> Even though she's talking about magic, and she's talking about school, like which is where they're going. And she has a point. She's like, guys, get dressed. We're almost there. Like She's really looking out for them. I feel very protective of Hermione right now. I'll tell you who Hermione reminds me of. Who? Is a little girl who is a grown woman now and is a wonderful human being, but a girl, Becky, that I went to school with. Becky in elementary school was Hermione Granger. (laughs) She was smarter than everyone, could answer every single question. She was the first hand that was up in the classroom. Super pretty, Super smart. All the teachers loved her. She was a go-getter. She was an A-plus student. I'm sure she graduated valedictorian. Wonderful human being. But as a kid, as a little boy, part of me kind of hated her. Like, oh, there goes Becky again. Answering every question, being super smart, being super prepared, but also kind of thinking Becky's amazing. And so when I meet Hermione, I'm in two worlds. Part of me is like, yeah, you annoy the crap out of me. But at the same time, you seem pretty cool. I, lo- I feel like that's Harry's take on Hermione at this point. Harry doesn't really, like, not that I remember. I maybe, my mind may completely change as I reread these chapters again. But 
Harry, I don't feel like at any point is like, oh my God, Hermione. Like all we get are kind of like Ron's reactions. But yeah, I mean, she's she's self-assured. What 11-year-old girl is self-assured? Hermione's Becky, a, Becky and Hermione and Granger. Hermione. And that's it. That, like that's it. That, that's only, all we need. That can only be two. They can only be two. Let them lead the world. Yes, Becky and Hermione Granger. Uh, you know, so we're almost at school at this point. Draco Malfoy, Crabbe and Goyle. We've got this confrontation. Harry's got balls, by the way. You know, Eleven is also a really hard time socially. Draco essentially marches into this compartment. And he's like, oh, some wizarding families are better than others. I can be a powerful friend of yours. And Harry not only doesn't go for it, but like they literally, I mean, they don't really get in a fight. I mean, Scabbers like bites but Harry literally stands up. He does. He says, say it again. And it says that, um, who are the henchmen? Goyle and... Crab and Goyle. Crab and Goyle. The book says that they're bigger than Harry. Yeah. But Harry pops up like, what, son? It says that Harry says, say it again. And in his head, he's like, oh, shit. These guys could totally kick my ass. Which is this really cool thing because if Harry was six feet tall and super built, which would be very weird for an 11-year-old, by the way, but still, that would be one thing for him to stand up to them. But he's not. He knows he could get his ass kicked, and he does it anyway. And it's also another sign of, hey, this is my friend. You know, I've only talked to this kid for 10 minutes on a train, but we've had a little bonding time, and this is my dog now. Yeah. So don't walk up in here thinking that you can talk any way you want to to whoever you want to. Right, right. That first little initial sign of bravery that we get from our protagonist. Can we talk about the fact that Neville named his toad Trevor? Trevor. I know that you love pets that have human names. I love like pets. My that friend have human Anthony, names. when he was a kid, had a golden retriever whose name was Linda. And Linda. You've, you've always really it's, liked that. It's the greatest. I have a friend who used to have a rabbit named Samantha. We have a female cat named Charlie. <laughs> we sure do. We sure do. And if I was going to Hogwarts, I would bring Cozy and Charlie. And they would probably never come out of my suitcase. I'm looking at them right now. They're really cute. God, I love my cats. I do love pets with human names. Trevor the Toad. Just Neville. Just keep keep doing you, man. You're amazing. I love Neville. It is now time for Professor Kevlani to look into his bourbon glass and see what the future reveals. <laughs> it's not clinking. <laughs> What it's do empty. you? It's empty. That that would be a barkeep. <laughs> I have another liquor, please. <laughs> what do you see, Professor Gavloni? I see an unfolding of more information about the relationship between Dumbledore and Hagrid. Ooh, what we've been given so far about Dumbledore. He's greatly respected. We know Hagrid says, keep Dumbledore's name out your mouth, Vernon. Yeah, that's what Quit pushes playing. him over the edge. Yeah. Yeah, so there's that. There is, you know, he's the head warlock and this and that. Supreme he's all these Mugwump. things. Don't forget Supreme We know Mugwump. that he defeated someone in 1945, Grindelwald or, or something in 1945, which my brain was like, this is, there's something having to do with Fantastic Beast or something here that I don't really know. Yeah. Um, so there's that. And we find out that Hagrid 
was expelled in his third year and that they broke his wand in half and that Dumbledore gave him a job. Was like, hey, you can stay here. Which leads me to believe that Hagrid had nowhere else to go. Oh. And Dumbledore knew that he had nowhere else to go. Oh, man. And Hagrid kind of like puffs himself up when he talks about the fact that Dumbledore trusted him with certain responsibilities. Mm. So this has to do with, um, let me go off on a tangent here. Okay. Like I do about my past and growing up. I'm here for I it. I can't believe how much this book has brought out the 10 and 11-year-old me. We joked about Miss Small. Kool-Aid and cookies. Kool-Aid and cookies. On the last episode. Yes. Uh, I've mentioned a lot of things from my childhood. I talked about Becky earlier. Yeah. You know, my schoolmate friend. There's a lot of things that are coming up as yeah. a as an adult, as a 40-year-old man reading something that is about a, an 11-year-old, four 11-year-olds, that kind of triggers in me a lot of different memories and a lot of different things. There was, when I was in... Fourth or fifth grade, which would have put me 10 or 11. I think that's about I right. Think so. yeah. yeah, somewhere around there. There was a little boy. He clearly was a kid who was, as an adult, I see now looking back, was living in poverty. He often smelled bad. His clothes were dirty. They were ill fitting. Kind of makes me think about Ron Weasley. Yeah. A lot of people picked on him. Smelly Ronnie, or whatever his name oh my was. God. And God, I know this type of stuff breaks your worst. heart. But I had this wonderful teacher, Miss Smith. I remember Ronnie one day. I can't remember if it was that he smelled or was that he peed his pants or whatever Jesus thing Christ. that happened to him that was not his fault. This it was just how so he sad. was raised. I can remember my teacher getting a sub to take over our class. And she drove him, presumably to her home, let him take a bath or a shower. And when he came back to school a couple hours later, he had clothes on that we had never seen him wear before. That clearly Miss Smith had like, <laughs> you're getting teary out over this. I can't, I can't but clearly Miss Smith had like, I'm going to take it upon myself to like give this kid a little boost. I'm going to get him some clothes, give him a shower, like. If there's one plug that we need to give on this podcast is that the educators of this world are very, very underappreciated yeah. for the things that they do. Oh, my God. She gave him dignity. Even more than that, she just showed a level of care and protection that he most likely was not getting from home. And it instantly brought up that memory, the story of Hagrid being expelled and him being offered a job. And that's my first sign that Dumbledore, not my first sign, but the first really warm kind of attribute that's hinted at about Dumbledore is like, this is a caring guy who cares about his students and cares about Hagrid. Very long and emotional roundabout way oh to get to the point of my prophecy, which is I think we're really going to see, I hope we do. But I think we're going to see more unfolding of the story of the relationship between Hagrid and Dumbledore. It's a good prophecy. Great man, Dumbledore. All right. Lessons for our marriage. I will go first. I got my lesson for our marriage from Griphook, of all places. Griphook, if you remember is the goblin that takes them down to the vaults. 
Only one speed. <laughs> Only one speed. God. Can you slow this thing down? Only one speed. So there's this interesting moment where um, Grip Hook's talking about the vault where the very secret sort of grubby little package is hidden that Hagrid goes and retrieves. And Grip Hook says, if anyone but a Gringotts goblin tried that, they'd be sucked through the door and trapped in there. How often do you check to see if anyone's inside? Harry asked. About once every 10 years, said Grip Hook. Hilarious with a rather line. nasty <laughs> yeah. grin. Hilarious line. Yeah. Wow. So it, you may be wondering, friends, what in the world would you take for your marriage from that? But one thing that really struck me is this idea of doing things to another person for the fun of it, for the thrill of it. I mean, like I was really struck by Grip Hook's nasty grin. And I think when we translate that into marriage, it becomes this concept that um, it has been made famous by the Gottmans, which are, are really famous marital therapists, this idea of contempt. And I don't know why it just to me, grip hook in this moment is such an example of contempt, that it made me go, Oh, yeah, anytime you're getting that feeling where you're like, <laughs> you know, because someone else is feeling uncomfortable, that's probably not good. And I know that's not good for a marriage. So my commitment, thank you, grip hook is to, you know, a, not be a really evil goblin, but also... Who works in a bank. Who works in a bank. But I think maybe more accessibly in our muggle world to always make sure that the way I think about you and the way I consider you in my life is from a place of love and never from a place of contempt. Right? Should be easy because I love you. I think you're pretty great. That makes sense to me. It's, it's back to the concept of ammunition. Holding ammunition. Yeah, she's going to leave her crap all over the kitchen. We'll wait till tomorrow when her friend come over. I'm going to leave all my crap on the kitchen. Tit for tat. It's this tit for tat. And I think that's an easy thing for humans to slide into. Yeah, I think that's really cool. And I think that's cool that that's what you extracted out of that uh, (laughs) funny piece of this kind of vindictive goblin dude. I'm so glad you think that's cool because I was like, this is a weird one. I don't know how this connected in my brain, but it did. What's your lesson? So, my marriage lesson actually comes from Draco Malfoy. Oh, I can't wait for this. And this is when, and I don't, I'm not reading the text right now, but we spoke about this a few minutes ago where he says, you know, be careful who you hang out with there, Harry. And Harry says, I think I'll be my own judge of character, pal. Well, Harry has been getting information. So, Ron, where do wizards go after they graduate? So, Hagrid, why would you not want to break into the... To the bank. So what are owls for? What is this? What is that? He's information gathering. And here comes another piece of information. And instead of him just taking it on face value, like he has every other piece of information about the wizarding world, he's like, "Mm, I think I'll make my own decisions. I think when you get married, when you have a baby, when you buy a house, when you buy a car, when you pick a college, when you make large life decisions, other people love to tell you, I'm going to tell you right now, when you get married, be ready for blank, 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 blank. I'm going to tell you right now, when you have a kid, blank, 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 blank. And people do it in their best way to be helpful. But it's also this unproductive, judgy, you don't have any clue what the hell you're getting yourself into. Oh, yeah, you think this is going to be all fun and games? But wipe that little, I'm about to get married smile off of your face, pal. 
because marriage takes a lot of work. It's not all roses and rainbows and sunshine. It's like, dude, I'm intelligent. I've been with someone for a long time. Like, I know that every day is not a honeymoon and every day is not sunshine and roses. I know that there are going to be considerable challenges, but I'm not going to let the advice of others. When I get the advice of others, I'm going to listen to it and take it into account and try to use it if it's useful. But if all it does is conjure in me some sort of fear of some sort of bias, I'm not, I'm going to let it go. I'm going to let myself be my own judge of that because I know you better than the people giving this advice know you. And you know me better than that. And we will know our marriage better than people outside of our marriage will know it. And some of their predictions will turn out to be absolutely true. And some of them won't. But I can't walk into the most important thing that I will ever do in my entire life, a lifelong partnership, with this white noise of everybody's projected, internalized bullshit on my life. It's going to be tough enough to just to live this life is tough enough. It's going to be hard enough. We're going to have our own set of challenges without carrying everyone else's therapy session into our marriage. Right. So that's my, uh, my marriage lesson is experience things with open eyes and with open hearts and not carry everybody's opinions and suggestions with us. We appreciate them. We love you. We will be Harry in this moment in our marriage. God, I love it. That's a great lesson, honey. Good job. A Thanks. plus. Thanks for your support. <laughs> Well, that's all we have for you this week. If you're enjoying The Fox and the Foxhound, please don't forget to subscribe and take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Instagram at The Fox and the Foxhound, Twitter at Fox and Foxhound, no thes, and check out our website, thefoxandthefoxhound.com for show notes, more info about us, and eventually some sweet, sweet merch. Email us questions for the show at thefoxandthefoxhound at gmail.com. And for extra house points, send us an MP3 of you asking your question and we may play it on the show. If you'd like to help our baby podcast grow into a big and strong Hagrid-sized podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash thefoxandthefoxhound. No amount of support is too small, and we have some great things planned for our membership tiers in the near future. And finally, special thanks to Judson Hurd, who composes the music for our show. You can find out more about him and listen to more of his incredible scores at judsonherd.com. That's J-U-D-S-O-N-H-U-R-D.com. We'll see you next week. As we say down here in North Carolina, y'all take care now.